So last week, we had our Easter service, and we began a new series called Reclaim. And over the next uh, several weeks, what we're going to be doing together is we will journey through the first few chapters of Revelation. And as we do this, we're exploring. The purpose behind that is to explore how the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the ultimate reclamation project. How that resurrection of Jesus Christ It functioned to reclaim things that were lost, to reclaim things that appear broken, to reclaim things that seemed hopeless. You see, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all things that are broken in humanity and all things that seem to fall short, that no matter how much we strive for, It doesn't fully seem to fulfill. It shows us that true potential that can come out as it's reclaimed by Christ. See, the big deal of Easter Sunday and the main point of the book of Revelation as we go through it today and for the next several weeks is to reveal this. Jesus has already won. Jesus has already claimed the victory. See, because Jesus has already overcome, because Jesus has already claimed the victory, we can now fully bank our life on that new reality. We don't need to guess and think, is this, guy, is this aspect of my life going to bring me the most fulfillment through this relationship or through this job or through finances or through social pro or through social leisure we can bank and fully bank our life that because Jesus resurrected that our life as well can be anchored on that reality and it brings our greatest fulfillment This is perhaps the greatest news our world and our church need to be reminded of. But I also know as grand as it is, as exciting as that sounds, it doesn't always feel like it. We've gotten so used to Resurrection Sunday. We've gotten so used to hearing this good news that we say that Jesus overcame death and resurrected on that third day. We got so used to it that we don't understand fully its tangible power and its relevance in our life. It feels like a tradition that may have taken place long ago it has lost its power today. Somewhere along that journey, that fact that Jesus resurrected doesn't seem to make a difference, a transformative difference in my life. So we begin to ask ourselves, really? So Jesus, since you have overcome, since you have done this, does that make a difference in my life? beyond just church attendance on Sundays, beyond just holding to this hope that one day when I die, 
there is such a place called heaven that I'll be going to beyond all of this, does it impact the way that I live? You know, the image that Catholics are known for and they carry around a lot in their life is, you probably saw the, um, the necklace around uh, their necks or in their cars or you see, it in their, um, you see it in their churches as well. What we see is a crucified Christ on a cross. That's the central image that Catholics carry, a crucified Christ on the cross. And as we look upon that, we are reminded of Jesus' battered body. We're reminded to have reverence and gratitude for the sacrifice that Jesus has made for each and every one of us. But here's the thing. If that is our central image, that God came to die for us, and that's it, and he remains there on the cross, then it's easy for us to forget that Jesus has also overcome. This is why when we see a lot of Protestant crosses, we see Protestant crosses that are empty of Jesus hanging on that cross. Because what we believe is that we believe there's something more. It wasn't just this guilt. It wasn't just sentiment of what God did for us. There is a truer reality that he leads us towards. And he says, this brokenness, this guilt that we have, that when Jesus died on the cross, and we all acknowledge that humanity is broken. We all acknowledge that we're not really fully engaged and passionate about our life. There are certain aspects that feel that there's holes in it. And we're grateful for what Jesus did. We're grateful for all the sacrifices that he made for us. But it became just sentiment. It became just guilt. And we begin to wonder, is there power in the truth that Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave? And if there is power, what relevance does it have for me today? See, what we have to remember is God he hasn't lost control of humanity. God hasn't lost control of our life. Jesus is not this helpless, sacrificial lamb that was slain by evil, by the powers of this corrupt world. He is not a God who just helplessly turns the other cheek and he tells us to do the same thing, that what faith is about is morality. And this morality is about turning the other cheek, you know, dealing with all the brokenness around us and just holding it in. We are not just followers of a good man who gave his life for us. You see, brothers and sisters, the great news that we will see and explore together in the book of Revelation is that Jesus really has overcome. Jesus really is who he says he is. He is the sovereign Lord. And because he is the sovereign Lord and he has showed us his victory over death, then that same power is made available to each and every one of us today. He has defeated the graves and all 
the powers that seem to be in control in our life. That means we can have hope in Him with all of our brokenness and with all of our emptiness and all of our fears. We can place hope in Him. No, I want to ask, isn't that what we all need today? That when we're in the quietness of our own spaces, in our own heads, don't we wonder the truer value of our life? Doesn't it sometimes feel like we question, does God really make that difference? Doesn't it sometimes feel like God doesn't do anything so much about our pain, about our hurt, about our difficulties? And doesn't it sometimes feel like God just doesn't care? Now, brothers and sisters, as we engage in Revelation today, I want us to begin to engage. I want us to begin to see how God answers that in this portion of the Bible. So I want to begin together by reading our passage. It comes from Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 9 to verse 20. I'll be reading from the NIV, and I invite you to follow along. It reads this. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for giving us your word. And we're reminded, Father, that Easter must have greater significance than simply a story of history that took place as compelling as it may be, but powerless today. 
Father, Easter must mean more. And I ask, Father, as we journey through your word together, as we begin this, this journey of reclaim, I pray, Father, that you would help us to reclaim a vision of Jesus Christ. Help us, Father Lord, to reclaim a vision of who Jesus is. May that change our hearts. May it change our minds. May it change our motivation. Father, may your word work in each and every one of us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look right away at what Revelation 1.9 says. He says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God, because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, John, being one of Jesus' disciples, he knew something of the feelings of feeling hurt. The feeling of abandonment, the feeling of uh, confusion that begins to invade and creep up on our hearts and our minds when we are trying to follow Jesus Christ, but the reality around us and the circumstances that we are surrounded by seems to dictate that God is not in control, seems to dictate that God is not part of our life, seems to dictate that God is somewhere far away and we're not quite sure if he actually cares. During this time, many Christians were being harassed by soldiers. They lost their homes, and many of them were murdered. On top of that, what was happening within the churches and within these Christian faith communities was what was left, and the hardships that they were going through, there was still within the community heresy, that was happening. Within the community, immorality that was taking place. And within the community, brokenness that kept spreading throughout all the churches. For four years, John, he's able to hear reports as he's on this island of Patmos and looking out towards where all the other churches are. He's seeing the persecution that people are experiencing, how the church doesn't seem to be living in victory, and what appears to be the powerlessness of God to do anything about it. So all that he does is he's praying. He's praying and he's crying out for the church. He's crying out for the people. He's probably even crying out for his own circumstance. Am I supposed to live the rest of my days here on earth in isolation, in exile. God, where are you? I thought this resurrection, I saw it, Lord, and I saw you speak to me. I saw your, you, your promises. But what's happening today? Because you don't seem present. Four years he's praying and seeing no changes. Four years, that's 1,460 days of seeing nothing. See, there was nothing out of the ordinary that convinced John that God is at work in times like these. So yes, John, 
who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, who was closer than him to him than any of us would ever imagine ourselves to be. Even John knows what it feels like that God doesn't make a difference, knows what it feels like when God doesn't show up. But what we see in John is that John doesn't give up. John, he's patient. He continually perseveres and endures. And despite what he was going through, he encourages all the churches and the rest of us to do the same as well. So how can John have that confidence? Where does this confidence come from? What allows John to press through four dry years of just seeing persecution and no power of God in sight? What gave John the confidence to keep on persevering? Well, look at verse 10. He says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You see, after four years of John praying for these seven churches and seeing no change and things seemingly getting worse and worse, God finally responds. So how does God respond? Does he, does he respond to John by saying, don't worry, John, you know, just like the Roman Empire did, um, what, I, what, uh, what the Roman uh, Caesar did, Constantine, you know, what he got together was an army and he put crosses on the, arm, on the shields of the army and they began these crusades and they began to like, you know, claim victory by hurting other people, forcing other people to be baptized. Is that what John does? Is that what John hears from God to create a forceful army in that kind of way? No. Does God tell John to start new programs and to help Christians get elected into government positions so that they can have more influence in their society? No. Does God tell John to ask in prayer that the current emperor of Rome, who was Domitian at that time, does he ask, God, let Domitian fall. Let Domitian uh, fall ill and not be able to serve anymore. Is that what he does? No, it's none of that. So what is it or what was it about Jesus' response, God's response to John that allowed him to confidently say to these hurting, broken churches that God is still in control and for them to hold on to their faith. The way that Jesus responds is through this. He responds with a revelation. He responds in, in the Greek word. He calls it in a, cop, a, a copolis. It's an unveiling. It's it's being able to see beyond our current reality into an unseen reality. This apocalypse that, that we see, this word being used, is that method, is that strategy that God uses to convince John 
I can keep going forward. He brings an apocalypse. He brings an unveiling. He brings a, revel uh, a revelation. See, what God does and what humanity seems to need the most when it looks like everything is broken and falling around us and God is unengaged is a powerful vision of who Jesus is. See, right there in the midst of this lonely, rocky island of Patmos where John is left to slowly die, God shows up and reveals who Jesus is right now. Not who Jesus was back then. Not who Jesus will be in the future on that day when we all go to heaven and we're all resurrected. No, he says, right now, I'm giving you an apocalypse. Right now, I'm giving you a vision of who Jesus is in the midst of our brokenness. Not on the cross dying, this risen, ever-present Lord, who he is, and how he matters even today. He gives us an unseen reality. He helps John see what's at play, what no one else sees. And he lives by that greater vision. You know, a brief look at history will help us to understand this better. John wrote this letter around 96 AD. And around four years later, in 92 AD, John was exiled to the island Patmos by the Roman emperor Domitian. Domitian... Uh, he was known to be a very insecure emperor, always fearing that he would be overthrown by his own people or by other nations. So to compensate, he made an edict in all of Rome to declare that all peoples would have to worship him as Lord and God. So the ritual was quite simple. He said, every time you just go to the temple, and that temple can still, still be seen in Turkey. He says, take a pinch of incense, cast it on the altar, and say these two words. He says, say, Caesar Kyrios. In other words, in English, it means Caesar is Lord. He, meant, he demanded everyone in the Roman Empire to say that. But for John, this was impossible. At that point, at that point, for John, paying respects to Caesar, yes, he could do. Giving tax to Caesar, yes, he could do. But worshiping Caesar, no. This is something that John said, no, I will not compromise on. You see, for John, there was only one Lord deserving of worship. That was Jesus Christ. So John politely refused, and this angered the Roman authorities. They actually labeled him an atheist. And they say, you don't believe in gods. You see, for other people, worshiping Caesar in their minds, it, it made them feel like it holds the empire together. So for them, they thought that John being an atheist, not believing that the Caesar can be a lord or can be a god, they felt that John was now a threat to the Roman unity. So he had to be punished. And so their form of punishment was to send them and exile him to the island of Patmos. Now, make no mistake, Domitian had no qualms about killing John. Like, he had no, no issue about killing other people. In fact, he had already killed 40,000 Christians in just one year, in 92 AD alone. 
So Domitian had no problem killing John. But what he also understood is that because John was such a big figure in, in the church, he understood if he killed John, he would become a martyr and create an uprising within the church. So what they decided to do instead is let's qualm, squash any hope of an uprising and let's just abandon him, make him lose his influence among all the churches by separating him and isolating him from everyone else. So they chose the worst punishment that they felt that they could give John without causing a riot. So while on the island, John had to stand by as he watched the emperor Domitian have a horrific rule that deeply persecuted and impacted all these seven churches. And in the midst of all of this, and as he's for four years not seeing any change and God engaged in any way, John hears a voice behind him. It was, he says, it was as loud, as clear as a trumpet. This vision was not just simply in his head. He wasn't just having it in the back of his mind. It was a very real experience. John actually had to turn around, he says. He says, I had to turn around and not just say to uh, hear the voice. He says to turn around to see the voice. In other words, that voice was so heavy. It was so real. It was so tangible that when he turned, he actually saw that voice. John had an apocalypse, a vision to see the true reality of who Jesus is right here, right now, in the midst of the world's brokenness. And notice what we see here is the location of Jesus. When he turns around to see the voice, he doesn't say he turned and then he looked up. To see the voice. No, God's not up there far away from us. He's not looking down where Jesus is supposed to be in the grave or Jesus who has little effect on us. No, he's right in the middle. He's in the midst of where John is at. He's right there on the island of Patmos with John. As isolated as John feels, as alone as John feels, Jesus in that vision shows him, I'm here. I want you to have an apocalypse. I want you to see the greater unseen reality. See, brothers and sisters, sometimes we have trouble with the resurrection. We have trouble with Easter. We have trouble with why Easter is so important because we have a sight problem. We're so used to judging things and living by the standards of this world, by our physical reality, that this truer metaphysical reality is something that we do not see. This is why it loses its significance. It loses its power over us. Our reality is simply shaped by what 
our world wants it to see. And we live by those standards. See, if John continued to live that way, he would have just resolved himself to say, well, God doesn't make any changes. I'm stuck here on the island. Nothing is happening. Does God really exist? But instead, God gives him an apocalypse to see a greater, unre- a greater unseen reality. Brothers and sisters, maybe that's what some of us are missing. But in order to get there, what we see John doing is he never gave up in those four years. <coughs> Despite how quiet, how unengaged it seemed God was in his life. John continually came before God. And it says, as I was worshiping on the Lord's day, he never skipped out on worship. For us, Sunday worship. For them, maybe Saturday worship. But he says, on the Lord's day, on the seventh day, he said, in the four years that I was here and that no one is watching, no one is holding me accountable, I still showed up to worship God on the Lord's day. For four years by himself. And after pouring in all of that investment, it prepares him to see the reality of God's vision. This ever present Lord with us in this situation, what Jesus is trying to show John is he says to John, I know. I know what you're going through, and I know what the churches are going through, and I'm right there with them. I'm right there with you, every step. So who is this ever-present Lord that John describes? Well, he says after he saw this vision, this is what he became convinced of. He says in verse 17b and 18, I am the first and the last. In other words, there is nothing beyond me. He says, I am the living one. I'm not dead. I'm not just a story. I am present and living today. He says, I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. He also says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. This letter of revelation was needed for the seven churches in John's time. And it's also needed today in our churches, in our time. You see, what John wants us to see is despite what we're going through, we need to seek, we need to reclaim a vision of who Jesus really is. We need to stop seeing our faith, stop seeing our church, stop seeing our engagement with God through our lens. We need to stop thinking that we're doing God a favor or these are traditional things that we just do by showing up at worship and sitting there and just being attenders. We are called to engage in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we engage in that relationship, we begin to see a greater revelation. We have our own apocalypse. We see beyond what our current reality dictates, and we live by that greater reality. Brothers and sisters, John saw something 
on that island that he never perceived before. And it began with a revelation of Jesus Christ. For each one of us today, I want to challenge us. As much as it feels like the resurrection has no power over me, has no significance in our life, don't give up. Keep coming to God despite what the perspective seems that we're alone, we're isolated, we're not really engaged with God, God's not really engaged with me, I see no transformative power in my life. Don't give up. Even for John, it was a four-year desert. But in those four years, as he kept investing, as he kept putting things in, it formed the building blocks and the foundation that prepared his heart and his mind to see the vision that would not just change his own perception of how he was supposed to live the rest of his life here on earth, but it also brought about the final book, the book of Revelation, that became a tremendous blessing for all the churches. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters. May we learn how Christ, through his resurrection, reclaimed our ability to always have access to have a vision of Jesus Christ, a truer reality of who he is. May we seek that together. May you experience that in your own places and begin to see all parts of your life redefined by that new reality. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for blessing us with this Sunday morning and our engagement in your word. And I pray for each and every one of us that are here today. Will you give us, Father Lord, a new vision of who you are? May we reclaim a new vision of that unseen, greater reality, Father Lord. And as we see it, may we see the lens of our, uh, may we see the purpose of our work experience through that. May we see the purpose of our relationships through that. May we see the purpose of our own personalities through that. I pray, Father Lord, may that new, greater, unseen reality be made apparent to us as we seek after you. Father, engage with us, Lord. May we be ready to receive it as we engage with you as well. Thank you, Father. We commit all these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.